Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Case 10, page 98. Okay, so Donna is first. All right, case 10, destitute King um, Ching Shui. <coughs> named Qing Shei, ask Master Sao Shan, I am poor and destitute. I beg you, Master, relieve my distress. Sao Shan called out, Akarya Shui. No. Yeah, Shui. Yes. Um, Shao, Sao Shan said, you have already drunk three bowls of our family Ching Wan's home-brewed wine, and yet you still say you haven't wet your lips? Okay, so we sit for five minutes. Okay, Gail. So we read the koan and woman's comment. Okay, the destitute Qing Shui. A monk named Qing Shui asked Master Chao Shan, I am poor and destitute. I beg you, Master, relieve my distress. Chao Shan called out, Acharya Shui. Qing Shui responded immediately. Yes, Kao Shan said, you have already drunk three bowls of our family Qing Yan's home-brewed wine, and yet you still say you haven't wet your lips. Woman's comment, Qing Shui misses the occasion. What was he thinking? Kao Shan, with the eye of enlightenment, profoundly discerns the potentials of those who come to learn. Nevertheless, tell me, where did Acharya Qing Shui drink the wine? Destitute like Fan Dan, but with the spirit of Shang Yu, although he has no way to earn a livelihood, he dares to contend with the richest of them. That is Shi Chong. Okay, and now we sit for another five minutes and then we'll write for five minutes. And now we write for five minutes. Yeah, I think I'm reading now. I think you are. <coughs> uh, Guo Gu's comment. In traditional Chan training, this case is about post-awakening practice. So it may be particularly difficult to understand. However, we need not see it that way. This is surprising already because it seems like he's a rank beginner. <laughs> what is difficult is that this case is set 
in a pre-modern context foreign to us. Moreover, Wuman also makes allusions to ancient Chinese lore, all of which make the case obtuse. To put this case in a modern context of our lives, King Shu, an accomplished practitioner, comes to question Chan Master Kaoshan Benji, 840 to 901, the co-founder of one of the most influential Chan schools that still exist today, <coughs> and essentially asks, I have nothing left, nothing to grasp, nothing to obtain, no attachments. What more is there to do? On the other hand, this was a gesture to seek instruction. On the other, it was a challenge. Who's that one? Uh, Peg. Peg. How do you teach a man who has let go of everything? You're not muted, but I'm not hearing you. You're not hearing me? It's probably me. I'm not muted. Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you, Peg. Okay. How do you teach a man who has let go of everything? You let go of the notion of having let go and start living. This is why Kaoshan yells out, Acharya Shui. Yes, he replied. Kaoshan then continues, what a response. Having had your fill of the finest homebrewed wine of Qingyuan, you still claim that you have nothing. The wine of Qingyuan refers to Chan master Qingyuan Qing Si, uh, 671 to 741, a main disciple of the sixth patriarch, Wei Neng, and the progenitor of the Kaodong lineage of Chan. Having his wine means having already received the teaching of this lineage. Oh, that simplifies things. In this case, the monk responds to Kaoshan's call, but does not re recognize his own response as the most natural function of the awakening mind. The response to what is seen, here, smelled, tasted, touched, and thought, hid well in what Shan refers to as death emptiness, or that stagnant void of holding onto non-attachment, the state of being destitute. Wu Min and his comment highlights the crux of this case for us all. Under what occasion have you drunk the wine? Why are you already full? This is a good reminder that as a practitioner, you must put yourself in the same situation as Qing Shui. You may think to yourself, I'm just beginning, but that's not really the point. Don't think this case necessarily involves someone seasoned or advanced in practice. Beginners or advanced practitioners are all the same. Put yourself in this situation and ask, how is it that I'm already drinking the wine? The fundamental principle in the Chan tradition is that each and every sentient being is replete with the wisdom and compassion of a Buddha. You only have to discover it and exercise it. It is not a matter of your acquiring more spiritual experiences or losing worldly things. No, in each moment here and now, wisdom and compassion are ever present. So tell me, how is it that you are already drinking the wine? 
destitute like Fan Dan, but with the spirit of Zhuang Yu. Though he has no way to earn a livelihood, he dares to contend with the richest of them, that is, Shi Chong. Fan Dan was a famous but poor Han Dynasty man. He lived humbly and frugally, but became a cultural hero through his filial filiality and diligence. Legend has it that he married the daughter of the richest man in town, Shi Chong. They lived happily and raised a family. Shi Chong had disowned his daughter before they got married and never saw her again. Later, when Shi Chong found out that Fan Dan and his daughter were earning a good living and had become wealthy, he set out to visit his daughter and Fan Dan. Shi Chong was quite impressed and was embarrassed at the same time because he had previously scorned Fan Dan. But as luck would have it, a year later, Fan Dan and his wife lost everything they had by helping victims of a natural disaster. They were still happy, even though they were now again living in poverty. Zhang Yu, a great general of the late Qin Qin uh, dynasty, was another cultural hero. Zhang Wu had won many difficult battles. The significance of Wuman's connecting Fan Dan with Zhang Yu in his verse comment is that King Shu was also destitute, yet through intense practice he had great power <coughs> like General Zhang Yu. Although he had no way of earning even the simplest livelihood, he dared to contend with the richest of them. He dared to challenge Shan Master Kao Shan. Although Ching Shui was already advanced in Chan practice, he still sought out instructions. Most people who think that they have already accomplished great things will not humble themselves to others. But this is the spirit of a Chan practitioner, a beginner or one advanced in practice. Everyone is the same. It doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't really matter what you have, how long you have practiced or what kind of insights you have had. If you can, in an instant, be free from the shackles of having or not having, gaining and losing, being rich or poor, then anything you do will be a function of wisdom, of enlightenment. The problem is that most of us are confined by what we know, what we experience, what we gain and lose. You need only examine your own life to see what nearly all of the exertions, emotional afflictions, challenges that you face come from your own sense of gaining and losing, having and not having, wanting and rejecting something. It isn't, it isn't it true that this define you and shape your wants and needs. Why, why is this so? Are you born with these values? Why do you allow them to constrict you? Long-time practitioners know the Buddhist teaching of emptiness and no self and the basic core principle of detachment. They know that most of their troubles come from attachments to gaining and losing, having and not having, me, mine, yours, and others. So they detach themselves from everything, actually, 
The problem doesn't lie with these objects of value or values. The problem comes from automatic identification with these things that govern all of our choices. We lose sight of the fact that these are just conventions, temporary phenomena, phenomena that help us navigate through our daily life. There is something so fundamentally liberating within you that naturally frees you from moment to moment. Yet you miss it and settle for more ideas and constructs. Even the teaching of emptiness or non-attachment is a construct that some attach to. People may mistake this inner freedom for some kind of blissful state, such as nothingness or emptiness. Or if they are clear of wandering thoughts, they may think it is emptiness. No, it is not. Emptiness is everything right now. It is the dynamic flow of our connectedness to everything. It is our natural ability to respond from moment to moment. It is fullness, connectedness, and relationships. It is the free response to the world without being obstructed, without injecting a self into all situations in everything that needs to be done. People are usually so caught up in their knowledge and experience of what they know and don't know that all of their responses are filtered through their opinions, discriminations, experiences, and the way they compartmentalize things. Their responses come from the way they have been conditioned. They respond to things in a certain way, unintentionally, without awareness. They are not truly responding just filtering information, caught up with habit patterns, words, language, and construct. This is responding with attachment. People also live in a world that conditions them into thinking they lack something, that they are inadequate. For example, you see in magazines what beautiful people are supposed to look like, and you try to live up to that image because you think you should look like that. Television programs show houses of celebrities, all the bling, bling they have and you don't have. Chan tells us you lack nothing, but it is hard to have confidence in the thought that you lack nothing. See through the veil of the very mechanism and habits that drive you, that shape your opinions, discriminations and experiences, <coughs> and the way you relate to the world. Don't mistake them for who you are. This mistaken identity is a culprit, preventing you from seeing your true nature. It causes many problems and much grief in life. So as beginning practitioners, you should not think in terms of being beginners. Let that go. Likewise, seasoned practitioners should not think of themselves, think that they have acquired much experience. They need to let that go. The point of practice is for you to understand what is before the notion of being a beginning or a seasoned practitioner. <coughs> to understand who you are before these constructs, before you get mistakenly involved with grasping conditions. If you can do this, you will see that you are already full that you have already drunk three bowls of Master King Yan's finest homebrew wine. 
as long as the illusion that you still lack something is there, you will continue to seek. As a Chan practitioner, practice hard, but do not entertain ideas of gaining and losing, having and lacking. Don't mistake what arises in meditation as me or mine, self or others. Please don't turn your practice into some fixed ideal of this or that. Sit, accept, and open to what is already within. If you get caught up with constructs and ideas, you will be stuck. Your true nature is free like the air you breathe, unobstructed, yet filling all spaces. Your life is also like that. As long as you hold onto fixed opinions, discriminations, experiences, you suffer the consequences of your own attachment. You lose sight of the obvious. You can see the fullness of possibilities, of blessing and meaning. You cannot see that things are actually free. I was recently at some friend's house. The couple was telling us how they met and eventually got married. Japanese friend came to the United States in December 1999 on a visit, not only to see her husband-to-be, who was living in New York, but also to go to Times Square to witness that world-famous crystal ball drop on New Year's Eve and ring in the years 2000. People from all over the world came to see that ball drop. They start for forming lines in Times Square as early as 8 a.m. on December 31st. One problem is that people must hold their urine for a great many hours as there is no store open. Many wear adult diapers or urine bags. If one steps out of the line to find a bathroom, one will lose one spot and won't be able to come back. So our friend came all the way from Japan to see the ball drop. She and her fiancé were in line from 8 a.m. that day. By 11.30 p.m., he couldn't stand being there any longer and said, let's go home. Our Japanese friend got really upset. We've been here all day, and you want to go home now? The man was older and tired. They went home. Although this event had taken place a number of years before, she related it to us, and she could now talk about it in a seemingly lighthearted way. I could see that she was still a little upset that her then-future husband had wanted to go home only minutes before the ball dropped. Her fixed idea about seeing the ball drop had taken hold of her all those years, and she couldn't get free of it. I said to her, perhaps you should think of it another way. It's precisely because you went home when you did that you can tell this wonderful story now. That's what makes it so funny. Had you had the same experience as everyone else had, your story would not be so special. It would be the same as the thousands of others who saw the ball drop after hours of waiting. But you had a unique experience leaving Times Square at 11.30 p.m. after waiting there the whole day. That's what makes it such a fabulous story. The young woman thought about this and said, yes, thank you. Sometimes we categorize some of our experiences as negative and we carry the feeling for the rest of our life. Similarly, our traumatic experiences of the past have already happened. They cannot change. 
However, their meaning continues to change if you allow it. You can use your painful experience to help other people going through the same thing rather than carry it around on your shoulders as a burden. People who hang on to their negative experiences are forever bound by their traumas, but also by their fixed ideas of those experiences. What seem to be difficult experiences may turn out to be blessings. What appears to be good fortune now may not be so in the future. You should not attach to your ideas of whatever you are experiencing in life. The strength of your hold on ideas can be diminished through practice. The more you practice correctly with the right attitude of not getting caught up with gaining and losing, having and not having, the more you are able to free and realize that in each and every moment, you are already drinking the best home brewed wine of Chan. <laughs> this is incredibly relevant to uh, the day before the election. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I've actually shifted today, realizing um, I had a great talk with Lori about this today. And, and just realizing that I think we both realized that that um, the work is already cut out. You know, it's such a fine line between winning and losing. If, if Biden wins or Trump wins in terms of how much work needs to be done with 40% of the population already needing so much. So anyway, that was that was our thought that uh, or at least my thought that uh, not that it's not a big deal, but that that um, however it, it turns out, we know what we need to do. But I I think the main thing is just like not being so anxious and caught up in it, just realizing. I mean, kind of thinking about ER nurses and doctors and thinking that. Uh, whatever comes in, that's what they have to deal with. Yeah, it's whatever shows up. But that's very difficult to do in your own life, no? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. And I really, I'm glad that I joined tonight because I was looking for some nourishing. And it's amazing that this case is just talking to me because I was just going through that lately, this yeah. attachment or something and just... It was how, how is your wrist feeling? I'm sorry, what? My wrist is better. It's not fractured, so it's good news. Is it sprained? Uh, yes, it's sprained only the tendons. It's, so that that's part of me, my my attachment of my health. That I have my health, and this is like never got sick, and suddenly I get sick, and have these really very strong feelings with this. And when you, I read in that, I say, oh my, and I see it, but instead of even though that is just why me, you know, it's all me and me. Yeah. That becomes more and more, uh, as you get older, just becomes, I mean, it just so 
you don't expect that some people will have like all the luck and other people will have none. I just heard a friend of mine's wife has Parkinson's and now she's having a lot of hallucinations and stuff. And you know, just you kind of like have to realize if you don't have that kind of thing that you're so fortunate. Mm. And, and yet at the same time, it's so hard, Kim, to like Sandra is saying, not attach to that fortune, you know? I think you have to take the longer view, a much longer view um, to see. I mean, if you look back on your life at the things that seemed like catastrophes at the time, but turned out to shift you in a new direction. And um, typically you see, oh, that had to happen in order for this to happen, in order for me to be, you know, in a particular place or headed in a particular direction now. So that's certainly been the case for me. You know, the things that I thought at the time, I thought, I, don't, I can't survive this. You know, this is, so, this is so devastating. There's no surviving this. And, and, then, uh, and then everything opened up in a new direction. It was so surprising. So you can't really say that you would wish that on anybody, but it was a great gift. It's the, um, the stories uh, that we tell ourselves about what something means. And I agree, Peg, it's, I mean, I, I look back on my life and I see things that I wished at the time, I thought they were complete disasters. And uh, actually they were catalysts for growth and learning and change. And, yeah, painful um, as they were. I mean, it's not that they weren't painful. Hey, yeah. It is painful. Yeah, but it's the story you tell yourself. I, I saw a documentary um, a series on, on Netflix. I forget what it was called, but it was fascinating. And um, one of the little uh, segments was about the, um, you know, the uh, atomic bomb that dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II. And, you know, what a horrible thing that was. And then they went and they extrapolated on since World War II, all the things that they learned about energy and different things that happened as a result of that particular event. And yet at, at the time you would not, or even now, I've always had this, you know, the story that was the most horrible thing ever, you know, I mean, the suffering that it caused. And yet there's this flip side that I had no idea about um, scientifically about how it's affected the planet in other ways and science and so on. So um, I, I really just don't know what anything means. <laughs> I think that's, <laughs> you know, kind of what I, keep coming up again so it helps me release my um my really negative story uh, when i think about things long term like that I liked in the koan uh, or the when the Zen master called out Queen Sheng's name, <laughs> like Archarya, whatever it was. Right? Yeah. And then he immediately said yes. And, you know, it was sort of like the Zen master was then kind of saying, will that 
yes is the whole point. It's sort That's of like the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, you're just being right there in the moment. What what do you mean you're missing something? This is it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I didn't pick up on that, but I, I see what you mean. It was like being slapped or something. He became he became present. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and, which he always had always was. He had a very natural response. Yeah, natural. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So would that be the same as thusness? Yes. Or would that response? Yeah. It comes from that. Yeah. Uh, from thusness is the fancy about it. Nothing arcane about it. Nothing esoteric about it. Nothing. No, how do you? How can you tell someone to attain that? You know. How can you tell someone to achieve that? It's just be beingness, sort of. You know. That's that's what they keep pointing us to. Yeah. Well, and a kind of naturalness, you know, like, um, like the, um, the quote that we have in the Zendo that says, ordinary mind is the way. Well, that, that term at the beginning really is natural, natural, ordinary, everyday, mind is the way. Mm. We think it's something we have to figure out. And it's, it's the opposite of that. When you say um, to be, be more open, the more broad the view, will you add that like trusting to trust completely in that process, in that moment? Yeah, I think it's just exactly as it says in the Shin Shin Ming, when you let go of self-doubt, mm -hmm. you trust the universe completely. It's mm -hmm. not that doesn't necessarily mean you're always going to be comfortable. Or you're always going to like what happens. Um, but it is the mind of trust. And see, that's kind of what I, that was my first thought about what the monk was disturbed about when he, when he asked for his distress to be relieved was that here he's been sitting and practicing and he's received all these teachings. And yet he still felt some distress. He felt a sense of lack. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, that was the part that I underlined and starred was where um, um, Google Go says, as long as the illusion that you still lack something is there, you will continue to seek. Yeah. And so he was, you know, he had all of this, but for some reason he... Which reminds me again of the the one last week, you know, here is this enlightened monk who <laughs> does, for some reason, is missing it. Yeah. Yeah, it comes from this sort of perennial dissatisfaction, a sense of lack, something missing. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I, I have to say, I have a lot of gratitude for that sense of lack since it um, it drives a lot of people into practice. Yeah. And that's how they get there. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I feel like it, it, to say the sense of lack is something that should be eliminated 
I don't know. You know, it, uh, it actually, it's, that's what brings people to practice is that they, they feel like there's something missing in their lives or they, they feel like they're, they're missing somehow something, some part of themselves is missing or, you know, and I think um, uh, that's what sets people's feet on the path. And that sort of gnawing sense of lack is what keeps them seeking at least long enough until they can settle down and practice and let the practice work its magic. Cause it's really the practice. So, so, you know, that it's sort of a, it's the kind of thing where you think, well, we can't uh, disparage the sense of lack since it is what often brings people to practice. And, and the people who are perfectly contented and don't have any sense of lack, we don't see them in practice. So don't you think that even though you are practicing for a long time, you can still have that lacking? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Because yeah. we're confused, you know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So when something happened like this, you immediately get <laughs> dropped out. Yeah. You never know. I mean, it's such an accidental thing that mm -hmm. that shift is such an accidental thing. You can't predict it and you can't plan for it and you can't make it happen. But by practicing, we're creating all the causes and conditions that facilitate that shift. So, it's not that we're, it's not that we're making it happen, but we're making, uh, we're creating a certain readiness. There, we're, um, we're gradually, I think, dissolving some of the hindrances that prevent us from seeing it. It's always already there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the main hindrances for me is, maybe it was for this monk, is, you know, you you divest yourself of everything that you're not, you go through all this whole thing. And then, but you're still looking for something called enlightenment, you know, some event, some experience that's, you know, you know, so you've still kind of um, concretized or conceptualized something that is so, that is really just a natural state. Right. <laughs> And, and it's really hard. <laughs> something that's not you. So um, I think that's the thing, you know, we, we don't understand that it's always already there. I mean, as I, I've described it, this to people as it's like saying, how can I find my thigh bones? You know, where, where, <laughs> what teacher can show me how to find my, my true thigh bones? You know, it's like, <laughs> what do you say to that? You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't see them anywhere. I try. I sit in meditation. I don't see the, th the thigh bones anywhere. You know? Yeah. Ajahn has a story. He he talks about like your eyeball wanting to know what what it looks like. You know what it looks like. It's trying to turn itself back through your skull to find it, itself, and you know it's like it's almost comical. Yeah. Yeah. The contortions we go through, you know, maybe I need a different teacher. Maybe I should go on a, you know, on a three month intensive. Maybe I should go to India. Maybe, you know, I'm missing, you know, like it's just all this ongoing agitation over what seems to be missing. Or change my life drastically. Change my life drastically or give away all my belongings or, you know, live in an RV or whatever. <laughs> like it's like, yeah, you know, the contortions that we go through um, with these notions and concepts, as he says, the constructs and the concepts that we get 
caught in, even of what spiritual practice is. And so years ago, there was a uh, kind of homeless guy who was hanging around here, and he had many years ago traveled down to South America, to the farthest tip of South America, to get away from the United States. And when he got down there, then he, um, he felt a real bond with the impoverished people that he found there, you know. So he pulled out all of his teeth. He pulled out all of his teeth because so many of them had no teeth because of, they had, didn't have dental care. And I said to him, how exactly did pulling out your teeth help them? I mean, who, who was helped by that exactly? It was such a, you know, he said, well, I just felt this solidarity. And I, I was like, I, I don't see, you know, I can't imagine that those poor, poor people were like, oh, thank God he pulled out his teeth. Now he's one of us. You know, I, just, I, I, just, I can't imagine that. It seems so misguided, so fundamentally misguided. Yeah, so strange. Um, but people get these notions, right, of what, what they need to do um, and in order to be spiritual beings. So crazy. Mm. So, yeah, so I, you have an idea about what what spiritual is or what enlightenment is. Exactly. <laughs> uh, that's why I really appreciate Zen because they got so many characters, you know, yeah. all different personalities <laughs> who have awoken, and yet they're some of them are pretty crazy, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they kick the props out of any notions you have about what this is going to look like. And I just think of the Dalai Lama saying, my religion is kindness. It's just like, can we just be kind to each other? Can we just be kind to the people who are around us? That's a hard enough task, right? Um, but just to be kind, maybe that's enough. I've been thinking of a formless field of benefaction. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking of it as this big, big blanket. And, you know, if only we could just like, toss it over everything. <laughs> <laughs> in my vision of the last few days. It's funny because I always think of it as like a field, like a magnetic field. Not not like a meadow, but like a, a it's a form, like magnetism is a formless field, uh, energetic field of benefaction, just pure good. Mm. Yeah, and, that, and we just radiate that outwards, you know, we're just radiating that. Yeah. We have to feel it for ourselves. Too. Yeah. yeah, we have to feel it for ourselves, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We have to know that um, benefaction through and through, it has to permeate us completely. So a lot of us feel we're either damaged or we have some sort of character flaws that make us um, somehow wrong or um, defective unworthy. or unworthy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a pervasive and difficult kind of conditioning that's usually been installed so early. And we believe that it's an irredeemable flaw, not something that is a part of a practice or you know, a function of activity or something. Yeah, I, um, I heard someone recently say that at the core of um, this unworthiness or this, well, it could be pride or unworthiness, you know, this whole construct there is that the, at the deepest core of it is sorrow. 
And that's what we're afraid to sit with is the grief. Sorrow. I mean, grief. genuine grief. Yeah. Grief. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Grief that I'm, I'm uh, irredeemably made this way. Yeah. Did you say bread? Brick? Which word do you say? Babe? Grief. Grief. Hmm? Grief. Ah, grief. Sorry, sorry. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, uh, it's something that you, you don't want to feel it. People are, are compensating for, they're trying to be really, really good. So you can see they're working really hard to be good. Um, and it's, it's, it's not even so much to hide as to just compensate for the, you know, the devastating sense of loss and inadequacy and unworthiness. They, uh, yeah, it takes a lot of courage, I think, though, to um, uh, really actually sit with that grief because it, yeah. it, it feels like it's, it could be pretty, pretty deep, you know. Oh, yeah, and like it could take you down completely, you know, like you'd become just totally non-functional. I think it's hard to sit with this idea that we're dying. Our, our own, uh, yeah, grief for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But this grief of unworthiness is the feeling of not being what you want to be in the world. Maybe Flint was saying the other day that, that the practice of... Um, that if you really were to tell, did he say this in, in inquiry, if you really were to tell someone why you do a, a session, it's to practice dying or to prepare yourself for... Oh, to die. To die, yeah. I don't know if he said that in inquiry or if he said it in our practice group, but... In inquiry, yeah. In inquiry, okay. Yeah, if you were telling the truth, you would say, I'm going to die. It was Kobanchino who said that. And if you go up to someone and says, you know, you're dying, you know, they won't look at, they won't, they won't like that. Yes. It doesn't make you the most popular guy at the party. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so I, I mentioned this before to some of you, maybe, that um, I had a job of leading this guy who had AIDS in the early day of AIDS around the campus and then he gave a talk and he had he he knew he was going to die in a certain amount of time he had more togetherness he, he was he, he had a happiness that I've never seen before and he said you know the hard part was was waiting for the test results but he had so so uh, accepted this and then had the problem, well, what can I do now that would be most helpful? And so he decided to go around to college campuses and talk about AIDS. Um, There's something, something in him that I've never seen in anyone else. Well, except maybe other people who, you know, who were on their last lap, like my father and sister you know, we're able to not hold on and, and laugh and, and realize this is it, rather than being worried. There's a light in it. Yeah. I think, 
I think Jenny was like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Jenny was like that. Mm -hmm. There's such a beauty in that. Mm -hmm. It's like you're relieved of um, trying to become something. You know, uh, there's you, you, there's there's no more um, no more need to to be a certain way or to achieve a certain thing or to have a certain impact. It's, you know, it's too late for all of that, you know? So now you just get to, you know, zero in on what's really, really important to you, you know, uh, which, you know, would be some version of love, I think. Or you could not even wait until you're dying to have that happen. Yeah. <laughs> what a That's concept. That's the whole point. <laughs> Die before you die. So I can no way until I die. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what that um, call and response is, you know, Acharya Shwe in the turn, you know? Mm. It's just that. Nothing left in it. <sighs> but that requires so much practice because I just was... <laughs> really strongly, strongly accepting getting sick for me. Yeah. And I was reading this, it's like slapping my face. <laughs> like, this is attachment. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> well, it just adds, adds to the suffering. So. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I, I think like that too, Sandra, when something happened, changes with my body. And then when I sit with it, the thought that comes up is, what did I think was going to happen? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's like it's a big surprise. It's like, what did I think was going to happen? <laughs> True. You can see right away the expectations that are built into it and the assumptions. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and the ironic thing is, is that when that happens and I'm able to look at that and see how attached I am, there is such, like Kim was talking about earlier, such an immense sense of gratitude that I do recognize it and that I can still live for yeah. this moment. It's like, it's like this miraculous gift. <laughs> it's like when Jim Williams once in inquiry said something about how he, he had been sick for a few weeks and he was so happy that he was able to be sick. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, need to enjoy that. I, I, I think <laughs> my colleague, John Slayton, who was blind and who said, you know what we call people like you? And I said, what? And he said, taps. And I said, taps. And he said, temporarily able persons. Uh, mm. Interesting. And I've thought about that ever since, you know. It's temporary. all temporary. Yeah. Yeah. But it just it struck me the time because I was just going along just assuming it was always going to be like this, you know, like... Mm -hmm. 
But there must be some anxiety that we hold on to uh, believe, with that thought that we're always going to be like this. Part of our mind knows that we're not. Yes, but the manager parts of our mind have sort of exiled that part. <laughs> it's chained to a radiator in the basement. <laughs> managers are like, don't pay attention to those sounds. Everything is fine. <laughs> don't worry. Well, I have a I have a quick IFS question from something that came up maybe in your time or something else. But anyway, the, said something wrong. It's simply, it's simply, it seems some of the parts are very beneficial and, and we should just have gratitude for them and have good roles. They're not all like problems. Oh, no. Oh, that, um, we, I mean, we think of it, something's going wrong. We think, oh, that's that part and it hasn't grown up or it feels insecure. Well, we, we pay attention to the parts that are in distress, that are triggered in some way or in distress. But, uh, but certainly, the, you know, <laughs> the manager parts are often um, very quite happy in their work and very beneficial and things are going well, but they, they struggle when things don't go well. And so when there's some obstacle or something like that, and the other thing about them is they can tend to limit our view. So they, they want us to see what they see. And it's usually a fairly narrow view. Like most assistants, they're concerned with, you know, keeping you on, on task and doing certain things the way they want it done. So, uh, so that everything, everything can be safe and smooth, you know, like everything's, so, so everything's going to be smooth sailing as far as the managers are concerned. But that may not be an accurate reflection of reality and it may not be um, appropriate like to have everything be smooth if it's really appropriate to be upset or distressed or worried. Um, so. so I guess the gratitude would be toward like an employee who's doing a good job as opposed right. to- You say you guys have helped out so much, you know, I wouldn't be here without you. You're fantastic, you know, you're hardworking, you're working 24 seven, you're always there, you know. Um, but they do block access to the other parts, parts that are more vulnerable, that are more easily hurt, the parts that are, that they think of as dangerous, like anger or um, sadness, um, that, they, that they fear will overwhelm the whole system. So those parts never get um, actually uh, integrated into the whole in a healthy way. There's, they're always exiled. So the managers are very, very good at that. They're very good at managing, you know, take care of the exiles, keeping them, you know, lit on them. Um, so, but those exiled parts then are, uh, are really, I think I was kind of like lost souls because they're never acknowledged or recognized or appreciated on their own. So, <clears throat> I think that's a big part of, um, you know, practice for me is now meeting those parts. Yes. I mean, there was there was a time when um, the manager really needed to, when I was very young, do its job because I didn't have the maturity or the bandwidth, you know, to handle things. But now, and it's funny because I'll, I'll hear stories of people who've had like awakening experiences and then all the child parts start coming up, you know, it's almost like, oh, there's some space now to be met. Oh, you know? yeah. But it's kind of shocking me. because you, you think there'll be no, um, 
no suffering after you wake, you know, after you have these enlightening moments. And yet it's all, what it does is it just opens you up for those other parts to come out and be held. Yeah. yeah. I have a, my theory is that the exiles create the managers for their own protection. Mm. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. When you have a badly wounded part, a part that's experienced some traumatic, you know, uh, upset, then, um, then the, the part creates, that part goes into exile and creates the manager is how I think of it. I don't think of it so much as the managers are imprisoning the exiles, although they are really working hard to keep those exiles um, settled down. But I think the exiles have really created the managers as a way, as a form of protection for themselves. So in the koan, it's, it's a part that's causing the distress. Like a, Most likely. Um, if you're not, you know, the um, rule of thumb in IFS is if you're not feeling those ACs, calm and confident and creative and connected, and if you're not feeling all those ACs, you're in a part. So, um, and it, it may, that part may be very, very appropriate. So if you're in fear, you're in fear, maybe that's appropriate. Maybe it's appropriate to be fearful. Um, and that part that, uh, that carries the fear takes over. So when he says yes, that's not coming from a part. That seems, but it, it wasn't sufficient. It was, it was just like a glimpse of the whole person because then he says, you still haven't wet your lips. So it wasn't like he was totally transformed. You say you haven't wet your lips. Oh. Right? You still say you haven't wet your lips. Uh, yeah, you're, I hear that now. Mm -hmm. I was thinking he, he was saying you haven't let, wet your lips, which is different. Yeah, very different. Yeah. Yeah, that wouldn't make any sense at all. But the, um, you know, that what happened when um, Dick Schwartz was talking to the patients that he had, and they and he was talking to the parts, or the um, patient was talking to the parts, every so often they'd start talking about something, and he'd say, well, what part is that? And they'd say, well, that doesn't, that's not a part. That, that's who I really am, or that comes from somewhere else. Um, and that's when he discovered this concept of what he calls self, but what we, we would call Buddha nature. Something that doesn't have an agenda, that isn't um, a piece of conditioning. And that's, that's what answers when you say Acharya Shue. But it seems from Wuman's, Wuman doesn't believe that he really uh, changed or anything happened. He says he misses the occasion. He means, um, he's talking about, not about he misses the occasion that, um, uh, of having already drunk three bowls of the family homebrewed wine, he, he misses the occasion of his own awakening. Even though he, he seems to have been awakened when he said yes? No, before that. So, that. so what the um, Kaushan calling out to him is pointing to what he 
what's already there, right? Then he had to drink three bowls of, of wine in order to... Um, already studied, he's already, he's, he's actually satisfied, but he is expressing this dissatisfaction, I'm poor and destitute, relieve my distress. So still operating from a sense of lack, where there's no lack. Three bowls of wine, that's a lot of wine. Now you've had you've had all of these teachings. <laughs> Stephanie's wonderful clock. I thought it was time. Oh, it's time. <laughs> we have um, that that clock has the same chimes as my childhood grandfather. Yeah, uh, really? What I, what happened to your to the grandfather clock from your family? You know, I honestly don't know. It got moved to um, Virginia when we moved from Massachusetts to Virginia, but then I don't know what happened to it after that. My parents split up. My mom left my dad, so including the clock. So I don't know whatever happened to the clock after that. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that you lived in Virginia. Pardon me? I didn't know that you lived in Virginia. What yeah, I lived in Falls Church, Alexandria, and Arlington. You did. My sister lived in Falls Church. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah for many years. Yeah, yes. that was a very short part of our stay. I mean, the whole thing was, I think, one year. Um, so we lived in those three three places in one year. Wow. Um, yes. So getting back to the clock. Getting back to um, the clock. Was, are those chimes the West, Westminster chimes? Yeah. Yes. My grandmother yeah. had a clock with that, and we have it here, but it's broken. So now I need my husband to get it fixed. I know someone who this is what he does. He specializes. Really? Yes, yes. Oh, I got to get with you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you have the key to wind it, right? No. Yeah, my, I, mine I associate is, it. I associate my, it with my grandmother. So let me show you, uh, if you don't, if you can bear with the running around here, I have what's also called a grandmother's clock or a wall clock. And this has a key. This has a key that you uh -huh. wind in these holes. Uh -huh. But the grandfather's clock, this is done with weights, Wait. not a key. Mm -hmm. Weights. And so if you can see these weights here oh my god you and have I, those clocks yes i pull them up and so about every five days i have to manually cool. pull those weights yeah. <laughs> that's nice i love those clocks yeah it's very special to me you know how old it is uh almost a hundred years wow nice the name too. My daughter has my grandmother's grandfather clock, and uh, uh, Eric. Cool. Well, they, those those old clocks were so wonderful. Such a deep voice. Mm -hmm. They were part of the. Um, they're part of the backdrop of my childhood. 
visiting my, you know, because they, they go off, you know, every hour, every half hour, every, hour. every 15 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> and, and, um, I, I just, um, I have really fond feelings about it, you know, because yeah. my grandmother was a safe place to be. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And just the rhythm of it. It's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, I've, I've woken up my dogs <laughs> moving around, so I'm going to have to get off and take him outside now. <laughs> he's, he's wandering around. So I will see you all next week. Okay, take care. Bye, Stephanie. Bye, Stephanie. Yeah, yeah we're probably, we probably are pretty finished, I think, with this, but... Um, yeah. But it's good. It's I so appreciated Guogu's commentary because here's another case where I, you know, I was just like, who are these names? Where does this come from? And what is you know what are the three bowls of wine? And what is you know? Mm -hmm. So it was very very helpful. Yeah, I, I love that he uh, gives us the background, the context. Yeah, of, of all of this, because then it makes sense in some odd I, way. Well, this isn't just random words put together. Mm. Yeah, it's really referring to some old stories you wouldn't have any way to know. Yeah, so that's great. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, we'll mush on the next week, huh? Next week, we'll have um, a completely different orientation to the world. Yes. Next week. It'll be, it'll be very interesting. Um, you know, interesting times. We'll see. Yes, very definitely. Yes, we'll see. Okay. Take care. I'm going to take this little puppy out. She's, she's definitely overdue. I'm glad that I join you everybody yes i'm glad i'm glad too and i'm sorry about your wrist it's yes that is i'm going to read read this poem again good <laughs> how, did you, how did you hurt your wrist sandra i felt sorry sorry about that that's all right you fell oh i'm sorry yes yes trip with one of my furniture so i was worried it was a fracture so i was just like ah but no, it's, it was not. So that's it's good because that's, that's a bad place to have a fracture. In the race, yes. That's mm -hmm. what I was. But sorry about that. <laughs> okay. My phone is off. That shouldn't be. <laughs> okay. Bye, everybody. See you. Good night. Take care. Bye bye.